Hello, welcome back inside the Euros. We're heading into the quarterfinals hot. The last 16 was fantastic and the tension is ramping up. And that's just in the studio. I'm Rick Sharma. And I'm David Gibbs. And I am delighted to welcome Tim Lee to the pod. Tim is a commentator and television producer and he's been in Baku for the Euros. Hello, Tim. Hello, Rick. Hello, Gibbo. Hello, everybody. And you'll be pleased to hear Joe Casanelli is back too. Less oiled up this time, Joe. Yeah, it's a bit early in the day uh, for that, I think. We've also got a bunch of other great guest appearances later on to help us preview the four quarterfinal clashes. England, Ukraine, Italy against Belgium, Spain versus Switzerland and Denmark against the Czech Republic. Before we crack into these previews, how was Baku, Tim? Rick, it was brilliant. I had such a great time. I was out there working on some uh, venue features, so it was all related to Baku, to Azerbaijan. I was there for 12 days, went to the three group stage matches there and really enjoyed it. I'd never been. And you know, when your work takes you somewhere that you may not end up on a holiday destination, it is amazing just to see a different culture, a different way of life, different people, different landscapes. So I really enjoyed it. And on top of all that, because the work wasn't entirely based around the football and the training and the press conferences it just opened up a few doors to meet people locally to go to districts of Baku that a tourist wouldn't normally see to have one Sunday dinner for example in the home of an Azerbaijani family so really great experiences I loved it that sounds amazing how did you what was the communication with that do they they, is English is a good level over there or kind of mix and match a bit of (laughs) No, I mean, some people spoke good English, but we were with a fixer called Vusal, who actually lives in Medway in Kent, but he is from Azerbaijan and he was there with us all the time. We we would have been completely lost without him because he was translating and I think at times his head was exploding and there were some periods where suddenly he'd be telling me things in Azerbaijani and telling the locals things in English and then getting a bit squabbled up, but it was intense for him, but he was a saviour for us. Fantastic. All right, there's so much to get through today. We're going we're gonna to start with England because we're all English on the pod, despite what Joe's Italian passport says. Gareth Southgate's boys beat Germany and it would be typical England, wouldn't it, to get knocked out against Ukraine now on Saturday night in Rome? Well, what a big win it was, Rick, firstly, to overcome Germany. We've seen so many times that we've suffered against Germany, that we've struggled against the bigger nations, really over the years, whether it's Italy, whether it's France, Portugal, Brazil in World Cups. So this was a major achievement. Now the focus turns to the next challenge. And as everybody's been discussing, the England side of the draw looks slightly favourable. It was the Ukraine victory that came later that evening against Sweden. Suddenly we're up against Andrei Shevchenko's team, who are an underdog, came through as a third place finisher. And... There's a sense not only that England are expected to win this quarterfinal, but in some ways that they're expected to go and reach the final now. And some people are saying anything less would be an underachievement. Would it be typical England to go and fall now at the next stage? I'm not sure it would in some ways because we seem to have struggled against the bigger nations, as mentioned. So we've been fairly consistent, as I view it, as I recall it, against... Uh, the more middle-ranking teams. We'll just have to see. I think one of the big topics, the big interesting questions, is whether Gareth Southgate sticks with what he's been going for, 
which, if you like, is a broadly defensive system with Rice and Phillips protecting the defence. And let's be clear, England have been superb defensively. Or does he use this match to play with a little bit more freedom, a little bit more creativity? Yeah, that is the, is the big question, especially with the, the four players on bookings, including Rice and Phillips, both of those defensive midfielders. There's also Foden and Maguire on the risk of suspension. When I say typical England, maybe not typical, but I'm, I'm thinking Iceland 2016 here. I watched that in the United States in a German beer bar and everybody laughed at me. So this, this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, yeah, we're all celebrating after beating Germany, but it would just be, for me, the, it's the disappointment that's typical. Not, not the, the game against Ukraine, a, a team that traditionally we can beat, we have beaten, but more the fact that just when you think things are looking rosy, you fall out. And I think it would be, if England didn't get to the final, it will be a disappointment. It will be an underachievement. Look, one of England, Denmark, Czech Republic or Ukraine is going to be in the Euro 2020 final. That's mad. The other side of the draw is significantly, significantly more difficult than this side of the draw. Rick, that game against Iceland, I was following Iceland, working with them on that tournament. And when I left, everybody said to me, oh, you'll be home quick. And I got home five days before the final. That was an unbelievable evening. I think going into that game, if I'm honest, there was not quite as much optimism because we'd drawn nil-nil with Slovakia. And a lot of the football we were playing under Roy Hodgson was raising question marks. People weren't too happy. Uh, if I recall, there was this issue that uh, about who was taking the corners. And it seemed that we were wasting our best talents in the box and they were taking the corners. There were all sorts of... Uh, mumblings of unhappiness and then that was a, an implosion that was a dark night for English football that really was a heavy defeat wonderful wonderful scenes for Iceland we I don't know we'll have to wait and see I, I feel that this team defensively looks very well drilled I think there's um, a cohesion a unity there's a vision there whether people like it or not there seems to be a vision from Gareth Southgate uh, very strong in the qualifying as well semi-finalists in the last World Cup I know that a lot of the fans watching, and my father was at Wembley for the win, and he said for the first 70 minutes I would have had about as much entertainment watching my lawn grow. <laughs> but then things kicked into life. We put together that lovely passing move. And I think if you beat Germany 2-0 in a knockout game, you can't complain. I mean, some people say, look, this is about entertainment. And other people say, no, this is a sport in which the team that scores the most goals wins. And Gareth Southgate, it's very difficult to question him at the moment. Uh, what what does he do now in terms of um, taking the handbrake off? Uh, both of the teams, I would say, Ukraine and England, have probably shown more tactical variation, flexibility of the eight quarter finalists. So it's perhaps the most tricky um, to predict in terms of formations because we saw Shevchenko opt for the wing backs in their round of 16 match. Very strong performance. Zinchenko used more wide. We've seen Southgate change the system slightly two or three times during this tournament. Of course, going with a back five. Um, some people rather cruelly or perhaps accurately saying it was a 7-3, the <laughs> outfield formation against Germany. But yet we've been disappointed so many times, Rick. You're right. It's true. We felt the heartbreak. We've, we've felt the heartache. And, you know, I, I look back. We're playing against Ukraine in Italy. And it was two Euros ag ago, we played against Italy in Ukraine and that <laughs> game went to penalties. Um, so I think I read that three 
of England's Euros quarterfinals have all gone to penalties. That would be Spain in, in 96. Um, and when would it be? 2004, I think. Um, but we, we shall see. I just think it's, yeah, uh, I do think it will be a tight game. I think that's it. It's a fairly obvious statement looking at England's progress. You know, they just uh, are very, they've only conceded eight shots on target. They're a difficult team to get at. When they when the opposition has got through, we've seen uh, Pickford in good form. Very good reflex save uh, to deny Kai Havertz in the last round. Gary Neville, um, I saw him come on record to say he thinks Pickford's been England's player of the tournament so far, which is a really interesting comment and one I like as a goalkeeper myself because it's not about being involved constantly, but it's about delivering in those few moments where you have to deliver. Um, but... Rick, I hear you. There is always that fear because we've we've had our hearts broken many times. I, I would agree on, on Pickford. I think he's been absolutely fantastic. That save from Timo Werner did everything right. There was there was none of the, the goal left for Werner to even see. Pickford just filled up that space. Joe, you hate Pickford. You've gone on record many times to say you hate Pickford. What have you made of his tournament? Yeah, I mean... Much like the Swiss, I think Jordan Pickford uh, might be trying to win me round. I think he's got a bit further to go than the Swiss. I must say, he's a, he's a, he's a while off uh, an apology poem uh, on that front. I mean, <laughs> it's quite strange in that, as Tim points out there, you know, Gary Neville said that Pickford's been his England player of the tournament so far. I'd probably disagree and say that Sterling has been mine just because, you know, he's scored so many goals and been the match winner and a difference maker, but yeah, Jordan Pickford has been uh, has been very good. You gotta you gotta admit when you're wrong, and I was worried that Pickford would actually be maybe a problem for England at this tournament, and that he would ultimately cost them because you see him, you know, super riled up before games. He's you know the chest beating, cat. He took a catch against Germany two 0 and he screamed when he you know he hits the floor, and you kind of think, oh god, mate, you know, just just chill out a bit. But he's been very good. He's much like Sterling on that front, he's he's kind of not taken his club form onto the international stage. He's really stepped it up in an England shirt. And in the past, I think a lot of England players have done it the other way around. You know, they've they've been so good for their clubs and then really poor when playing for England. So it's quite an interesting dynamic that. And yeah, Jordan's uh, he's doing well. And maybe if uh, he saves a penalty uh, in the final to give England the trophy. Uh, I might end up writing him an apology letter as well. <laughs> I very much look forward to it. And in terms of the changes, we were saying, you know, is this time for Southgate to rotate, to keep the players who are in danger of suspension out, to bring in some fresh legs, to get a Ukraine defence that has been weak during the tournament. We saw the Netherlands put three past them. We've seen Austria take them to pieces as well. What do you do with the the changes? Is it time to start Jack Grealish, or he keeps having a big impact off the bench? Maybe best to leave him there. Yeah, I think that Southgate would be more inclined to kind of go with what he knows. I know that you know, as we said, that he's made quite a few tactical tweaks and changes, but I think that the game plan works so well against Germany that it's maybe just a case of sticking to sticking to your guns. I don't think he'll, I don't think he'll start Grealish. As you say, he's had an incredible impact off the bench, and I. I just think that Southgate's very happy with the with sort of the front line that he's got because you've got to think of who's he going to take out to bring Grealish in. And, you know, Harry Kane's a captain and, you know, as poorly as some people might say he's been playing, he's still scored a really crucial key goal and he's your captain. Are you going to drop him? 
I don't think so. Raheem Sterling has been fantastic as well, as I said, my England player of the tournament so far. So I can't really see a spot for Grealish necessarily from the off. I think the big worry would be the Phillips-Rice dynamic, just in that if they've forged such a good partnership in central midfield that they really are, you know, could could we afford to be without one of them in a semi-final? I do appreciate that Denmark and the Czech Republic aren't necessarily the highest calibre of opposition, but if you're in a Euro semi-final, anything can happen in a one-off game, even if it is at Wembley. I think that if there is going to be any changes, you may be looking at, say, Jordan Henderson coming in for one of those in midfield, just to give them uh, a little rest and to help see them through the game. And then another big question is the Harry Maguire one, because obviously Maguire's on a booking. He's played a game less than everyone else as well, or two games less than everyone else. I can't even remember which game he came back in for in the group stage. But that goes to show that Maguire's a player, he does play quite on edge and he does dive into tackles. And, you know, with Ukraine, you know, Yarmolenko is quite a tricky player who drifts around and, you know, you can kind of see him winding Maguire up and maybe forcing him into some sort of tackles that he doesn't, you don't really want him going in for. And then, as Gary Neville again to keep referencing him and if you want to come on the pod Gary I'm sure you're more than welcome producer Dave and Rick will, will have you on but Maguire is maybe one of the players that England really can't do without I think of all the players that are so important for the system Maguire is key so does Southgate put his trust in Maguire to just avoid a booking I think yes I think that's what he'll do however that's uh, it's a big risk but I still think he'll go for few changes as possible. I mean, for me, just picking up, Gareth simply cannot rest anyone. He, if this is a quarter-final, there's no guarantee of a semi-final. Do not take your eye off the ball. If a player is on a yellow card and you're worried that they'll miss the semi-final by getting another yellow, forget that thought. All you can do is pick the best team to win the game. So I don't think he'll rest anyone because of the card. Uh, the Rice-Phillips thing's interesting, but... In Henderson, there is a deputy. And in terms of the front three, maybe Saka makes way. Not because of uh, his performances. He was very good in the third group stage game. But more because the games come thick and fast. And it's an opportunity to put some fresher legs in. We've seen the impact of Grealish. We know the quality of Foden. We know the quality of Mount. So he does have options there to make a change in the front three, agreeing with what Joe said, that you, you can't touch your top scorer, Sterling, and you can't touch your captain, Harry Kane. As promised, we've got Ukrainian football expert Andrew Todos back on the pod. In the description, you can find his Twitter handle. And we spoke about the game. Andrew, good to have you back on. And you were right to be optimistic about Ukraine, weren't you? One of the dark horses, and here you are in the quarterfinals. Thanks for having me back on, Rick. Yeah, I mean... When I said dark horse, I didn't think exactly um, this sort of scenario where Ukraine would somehow scrape the group in third place. But then probably just about deserved getting a lovely win against Sweden. And now it's the big one. The home derby, essentially, for me. Um, place where I live against my family birthplace. So looking forward to it. What are your hopes for this game? What side, what side of the, the fence do you fall on? I've got, I'm too invested in Ukrainian football to not support Ukraine in this occasion. I think 
there's just some sort of history in the making, it, it seems. You know, Ukraine have qualified out the group stages of the Euros for the first ever time. Um, and now they're just writing history every time they play because this is their first quarterfinal appearance as well. First quarterfinal appearance in a major tournament since 2006 um, when they faced Italy in the 2006 World Cup. And the player that got them there was Andrei Shevchenko. And now the manager that has got Ukraine to this quarterfinals is Andrei Shevchenko. So continuity. What do you make of Shevchenko and his management of the tournament so far? Because I was stunned when, when Austria beat Ukraine. I thought I, I expected more from them, honestly. Absolutely. I, maybe we can call that Austria game an anomaly because it honestly was a dire performance. And that was something that even Shevchenko admitted after the game, that we played really poorly. Some of the players, Zinchenko, Malinovsky, also admitted that that was way below their sort of standard. But, you know... The excuses over there was that a lot of players were tired, um, some sort of energy levels had dropped. But come the Sweden game, they had eight days rest. And, you know, it, it showed towards the end of that extra time. Everyone was flailing, but they still had enough energy against the 10 men of Sweden to get it over the line in, an, almost in a very emphatic way. And then we'll see how the game management works out against England because obviously there's a much shorter rest break um, so it's difficult to tell but hopefully just riding on those waves of positive emotions and momentum potentially Ukraine could get a result A lot of our listeners are in England and of course will be supporting England against Ukraine and what you know, if you, what would you tell them about where Gareth Southgate what areas can he exploit Ukraine in? What, what, what are the weaknesses of Ukraine? Well I think the weaknesses of Ukraine is probably slightly defensively. Um, despite the fact that they've had a, they've got a few good centre backs and they've been playing quite well, there's something a bit, you know, that you don't fully trust, and you think that, you know, if if Kane or someone can get past um, one of the centre backs, either Zabarny or Matviyanko, but he's, uh, or Shevchenko is probably likely to play in a back three, uh, in a back five. Um, if they can sort of manoeuvre themselves past that, then, you know, the goal's there for taking. Albeit, Ukraine's goalkeeper, probably the star of their tournament so far, Bushjan, really pulling out the bag after a bit of a subpar performance against the Netherlands in the opening game. And what areas do you think Ukraine can punish England in? Likewise, I think maybe centre-backs. Um, I know Harry Maguire hasn't been playing too much. Um, so, maybe Roman Yaremchuk up top is, you know, he's a bit of a dynamic forward, got a bit of pace about him, likes to link up with the wingers and with his attacking midfielders. So, if he can try and exploit, you know, maybe the lack of pace that England have at, at the back and potentially, you know, if Mings plays, you know, he's not the most reliable either, then maybe you can create, Ukraine can get something out of that. What do you reckon? What are your predictions for this game? I know obviously you want Ukraine to win, but what do you think is going to happen? I've just got some sort of hunch that this one's going to be another extra time and it's going to go to penalties. And I've been watching Ukraine take penalties in training. Um, there's been a few videos. Bushjan looks pretty decent. 
um, in the sticks and he's even been taking Penenka's. So if it comes to goalkeepers taking penalties, I think we should be all right. But hopefully it doesn't get that far. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, heart overhead here, Ukraine to win it on pens. The biggest game of the round for people outside of England is clearly Italy against Belgium. That's on Friday night in Munich, where Joe is once again. You seem to be getting a lot of the biggest games, Joe. Yeah, I mean, I tweeted the other day that I've been at uh, Germany 4, Portugal 2, Germany 2, Hungary 2, Spain 5, Croatia 3. So I'm due a nil-nil, which is uh, quite worrying and, you know, uh, it, this Italian side, not necessarily, but Italian sides of the past are very defensive and they are the kind of people who you'd back to go into a, a cagey quarterfinal and eke a nil-nil and extra time and penalties. So could it happen? Yes. Will it happen? I don't think so. Um, but I've been very, very fortunate to be at probably the uh, Switzerland-France aside, the two best games of this Euro so far and hopefully long may it continue for this weekend. Who do you see as favourites? Italy? Because they've looked strong. You haven't been convinced when I've spoken to you before against Belgium and Eden Hazard and Kevin De Bruyne are doubts for the game. I would say that you have to make Belgium favourites going into the game just because of, while both sides were great in the group stage, you know, Belgium just have that X factor with Romelu Lukaku. As you say, the big worry for them is, are De Bruyne and Hazard going to be fit? I think Hazard would be less of a miss because you know you have the other Hazard who can just step into his brother's shoes as he showed against Portugal and, and come up with a, a moment of magic. But any team in the world would miss a player of Kevin De Bruyne's quality. And if you look at how strong the Italy midfield has been during this tournament, that's one area where maybe they would probably fancy themselves against the Belgians. However, and I know that I've said that the Belgian backline is creaky, but if you look at while the Italian backline is... Uh, very experienced and, you know, can shut sides out. They're creaky too. And I think that Lukaku up against Chiellini is going to be one heck of a one heck of a battle. And uh, Sheridan Bird, uh, Italian football journalist who came on the show, said that he was backing Chiellini to have one big swan song night, you know, to really just roll back the years. And who knows, maybe this will be it. I would be very surprised because I think Lukaku's in such good form and is such a good player that... He could quite easily tear him to bits, but we will see. Yeah, that really is one of the most fascinating duels in this match, which has so much appeal to it. A battle of the Robertos and shades of the 2013 FA Cup final. Martinez and Mancini going head to head. I see Italy as slight favourites, Rick. Um, it, it is very tight to call this one. Uh, Joe mentioned that they've got a creaky back line I think Italy have got a magnificent defence and 11 straight clean sheets before their previous fixture speaks for itself one goal conceded late on against Austria but they have a brilliant defence and yet at the same time I wouldn't call them a defensive team having said all that I do think this game will be tight and low scoring in some ways you could call it um, you know the richness of Italy's defence against the richness of Belgium's attack and the form Lukaku's been in, I thought he's just been outstanding. And some of uh, the way he carried the ball at the Portuguese defence in the last round was just mesmerising. So much confidence, so much momentum, so much drive. And 
of course, the likes of Bonucci and Chiellini need to be at the very top of their game to try and deal with that presence. We saw in the last round, you've got players like Carrasco and Dries Mertens coming off the bench for Belgium. They have so much quality. And yet, I don't think we've quite seen them click so far in this tournament. So could that be a blessing for Roberto Martinez? Is the best yet to come? Or are we seeing a team that slightly stumbled through? Um, not stumbled through, that's harsh, but they didn't really find a particularly fluent groove when facing Portugal. Could that be slightly because of the quality of the pitch in Seville, which was poor and we saw Spain struggle in their group matches there? But this really is an unmissable looking quarterfinal. Well, all of them, as you know, Rick, I feel that way. There's only seven matches left now in the Euros and I don't want to miss a minute. But it's just two teams that won three out of three in the group. They also both won 10 out of 10 in qualifying. We've just got so many top quality players on show. We've got this slight battle of styles where it's being played at one of the cathedrals of European football in Munich. Joe, a very lucky boy to be there. And yes, certainly looking forward to this. I think you're right about Belgium. They, if anything, they seem to have slipped a little bit out of gear. They started quite well with that 3-0 win over Russia, although Russia were very, very poor. And then the second half against Denmark, when Kevin De Bruyne came on, they really played well in that second half. But but since then, not, not, you know, not been completely convinced. They struggled a bit against Finland. And obviously, Portugal was not, a, not an easy game, and they did well to get through that. But they were on the back foot, and Courtois had to make a lot of good saves. So... Yeah, I, I I don't I don't agree that the best is yet to come. I think maybe it's kind of a difficult situation where if they don't if they're not in a groove, they could just get turfed out by an Italy team that are very much in a groove and have been very good. The only question is over Italy is whether they're ready to face a team like Belgium because they haven't played a, a good team yet, a solid good team yet. You know, they've they had Turkey who have been terrible, Wales who looked who did, they did well against Italy, but ultimately we saw them exposed against Denmark for, for what they are, which is a small team trying their best, but not not by any means a great team and not as we saw in the last year as a semi finalist team. And so Italy Aust Austria gave them a game. Austria were fantastic in that match. But they're still a, a limited team. So Belgium, on the other hand, are a limitless team. Like you say, they've got those the strength and depth, the Carrascos and the Mertens and the, the players that can change the game. And I just wonder whether it's, it could be it could end up being a shock to the system for Italy to suddenly face a really top European team. I agree. And in many ways, the Austria match was a shock to the system as well. It, it served as a jolt for them and, and Belgium can take heart from the, the direct approach and the offensive style that Austria adopted for that game. And they certainly got amongst Italy. They created chances. They put them on the back foot and in many ways were unlucky to lose 2-1 after extra time. And I think with Belgium, as discussed, you've got enough quality, enough attacking flair to take the game forward, to dominate the possession, to use uh, players in the wide areas, to try and run at the full-backs, to try and get Lukaku on the ball. So Roberto Martinez, we've seen... As well, if I cast my mind back to the last World Cup, when they eliminated Brazil, that Roberto Martinez made a tweak. Now, I don't remember exactly what it was off the top of my head, but he made a little tactical tweak ahead of the Brazil game, and it proved a masterstroke. And could he do the same again? Could He is a thinker. You know, he is somebody that doesn't just go uh, through the motions with a set formula that he sticks with. So he will be looking at this Italy team. He will have analysed this incredible run they're on. 
this amazing momentum they've gained under Mancini. And, and by the way, this whole Mancini story is remarkable. The Viali element, uh, th this, this whole backstory of, of this unfulfilled international career at playing level for Roberto Mancini and, and now how he's trying to fulfill uh, his own dreams on the international stage as a manager and, and the way that his memories as a player, his experiences are influencing his decisions. Very fascinating. Uh, but Roberto Martinez, you know, will he have a look now? I mean, generally we've seen Italy in a 4-3-3. We've seen uh, Belgium in a 3-4-3. I don't think, well, we'll have to wait and see. I think uh, Martinez will stick with that defensive shape he's used, but people have talked throughout the tournament that the back line is vulnerable and can be got at. Um, the front line of Italy, well, we've seen, you know, Insigne, Immobile in very good form. Uh, w will he start with Berardi? It looks like he will, but again, you just wonder at this stage now, you're coming into the fifth match, is it time just to put some fresher legs in there? I mean, Mancini was grateful that in his third group stage game he was able to do that having already topped the group so he was able to rest a little bit against Wales and we saw th that there's depth because we saw the players coming in and we saw masterclass that night from Verratti in the midfield so it's going to be a brilliant quarter final whether it's high scoring or not um, and you know Joe was talking about he's due a nil nil I, I slightly sense because Italy are so strong defensively and there's such wonderful competitors through the years. Rick, what you were saying about, you know, shock to the system now, almost a step up in level. They are one of those nations that for decades and decades and decades have been able to cope with the bigger occasion, with the bigger opponent. And I just think in Mancini and Viali, uh, they've got the right team to try and guide them and, and set them up for this tantalising quarterfinal. We've had a lot of Italian views on the pod. And I figured it was time to get the Belgian side of things. So we turned to Scott Coyne from the Belgian Football Podcast. That's at Belgian Podcast. Scott, so just talking on the pod to the other guys today, there, there was no consensus over this game. Joe has Belgium as favourites, Tim has Italy as favourites, and I'm leaning much more on Italy's side of it as well. But how do you view it? Well, I, I think this is this is a game that makes me a little bit nervous, if I'm honest, from a Belgian perspective, because the, the, the Italians have been by far and away for me anyway, the most impressive side in the tournament so far. I think the way that Roberto Mancini's got them playing, he's completely changed their mindset um, and the way that they approach games. And the interesting thing about the Italians now is they play football for 90 minutes. Um, they don't dial out of the game and um, try and shut the game down so much anymore. So the the, the totally different proposition. I think Belgium are favourites for, for a number of reasons, but I, I think... And I was saying this to somebody the other day. I think there's a very real possibility that the winners of the tournament are in this game on Friday night. Um, and it's just going to be such a, a kind of tasty, offensive game of football, I think. Yeah, it's definitely on paper the best game of the round. It's interesting to, to say that, to say that the winners could be from this game. Because, sure, they are the two strongest teams, along with perhaps Spain and England, the four strongest teams left in the tournament. But... This is the kind of game which saps a lot from a player. There's so much energy and effort is going to be needed in this one. Like you've seen how the Italians have been tearing into teams, defending really well. Belgium are going to have to be incredibly alert at the back to stop the way that Italy kind of rip into teams in this tournament. Yeah, I think so. And from a Belgian perspective, again, I think there's some injury worries at the moment. 
anyway, some big ones. Um, there's a situation with Kevin De Bruyne um, and his ankle. Um, we think he's going to be okay. What we don't know is quite how many minutes he might have in him and whether he's going to start the game. And it's the same situation for Eden Hazard, who, in his case, it's a, it's a muscle problem um, that he came off with. And that, that's an even bigger worry because... Um, we don't we don't even know whether he's going to get any game time at all on Friday, and he's just such a big player, important player. He obviously is the captain, so um, they they're big worries. You know, the, the camp will know themselves already. You know whether they're going to play and, and and what they're going to do there. But I noticed yesterday both players trained in private indoors, um, away from prying eyes. So um, they're keeping their cards pretty close to their chest on that one. Yeah, I mean, the last game, the, the big worry for the Belgians going into the tournament actually was the, the defence. That's where the question marks were going to be because of the age of the defence. Tremendous experience and quality there, but would they be able to withstand the onslaught of, you know, a really good um, attack and forward line that had kind of pace and creativity? And certainly against Portugal in the last round, they withstood the first challenge they've had in a long time um, at a competitive level kind of quite well. Um, which was pleasing from the Belgian perspective. And the same thing's going to happen again. You know, they're going to be up against, you know, a really, really good forward line um, and going to have to withstand that that onslaught. But, you know, all of that experience in the Belgian squad is going to have to lead them to try and control the game, I think, and take the initiative here. Um, and there's there's no reason why they can't do that because they did that very well against Portugal as well, um, who, are, who are very good up up at the top end and they managed to kind of blunt that. So um, it's going to be a really interesting game tactically, I think, as well. If Kevin De Bruyne and Hazard are out of this one, I mean, Roberto Martinez has said they're not out of the tournament. They will be back if, you know, if Belgium get through. They couldn't confirm if they would take part against Italy or not. How would you see Belgium lining up without them? Well, there's a number of options there, um, I think, um, open to Roberto Martinez. I mean, Yannick, Yannick Carrasco could come in. Um, Dries Mertens equally could come in. And he also has the option of bringing uh, Jeremy Doku in. Um, who's an absolutely brilliant, outstanding young talent, um, tremendously exciting young player who's kind of um, got a really bright future ahead of him, I think. And um, he he could take up one of those two roles, I think. Um, and there's a good chance we'll see, certainly, you know, one of these three, I think, at some point during the game, even if Hazard and De Bruyne do start. I mean, we're not going to know until probably about an hour before kickoff, actually, the way that Belgium are really going to line up. Um, and we'll know more then. But he, he has more options than you think, actually, um, when, when you look at that squad. Um, so I'm kind of gently encouraged by that. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll need to see what happens there. Doku, Doku would be a very bold and exciting shout from Martinez. I was a little bit dis- disappointed when he brought Dries Mertens on in the last one. I feel like Mertens, maybe it's just maybe it's just fatigue of seeing him for so many years and years and years. I thought Doc would be a much more exciting player to bring on in that situation to try and hit Portugal on the break in that game. And I spoke to Christophe Terror, the, the Belgian journalist ahead of the Euros, and he again was, was like you, very high on, on Doku. And he also said that he thought Belgium would get to the semi-finals and then lose to France, but France are out. So <laughs> how do you see how do you see the situation now for Belgium? If they get through the Italy game. Mm. Well, I mean, I think um, I, I was asked a lot before the tournament, you know, what, what would be considered a success for Belgium? What's the minimum here, in all honesty? And, you know, I, I would agree with that. I think semi-finals has got to be the minimum for, for a successful tournament, really. Um, so this is, this is a huge game, really. I think, 
I think the expectation level is going to go through the roof, I think, if Belgium win on Friday, because I think there's a lot of people that are going to go, well, there's no reason why you know they can't and shouldn't go on and win this. Now, of course, it isn't that simple because the Spanish are very good. They are. They've not been playing at the levels we know they can they can reach, um, but they're a, they're a very good side. So, you know, if, if they to get past Italy... Um, and it is the Spanish that they play in the semi, then um, that will be an equally hard game. But having said that, I think um, I also agree with those who say there's no reason Belgium shouldn't at least get to the final then because they would become... I mean, for me, there's really three favourites looking at it on paper anyway, um, and that's um, Belgium, Belgium, Italy, I think, and um, Spain. I, I, I've, I've been saying Spain since the last round because although they haven't been playing that well, I think nobody's really talking about them too much. And they are slowly improving, I think, um, and sharpening up uh, everything they do. So um, I think the winner is coming from this side of the draw, I suppose that's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I think may, maybe it's Scottish bias, but I think England have to be among the favourites, not on paper, because those three teams, like you said, they are stronger on paper, but England have a much yeah. easier run to the final. And they're not going to have to strain themselves in the same way that Belgium would have to strain themselves yeah. to get past Portugal, to get past Italy, to get past Spain would be an immense stress on the, on these players, especially players like Hazard, who's so fragile. We've seen him all season for Real Madrid, barely played. And then Kevin De Bruyne, who's also had plenty of injury injury trouble this season. What do you make of Hazard? He was He was good against Portugal. And I think any Real Madrid fan watching that would think, where the hell has this guy come from? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's actually had a good tournament considering he's not been completely fit. He really has, you know, and he has had an impact um, in the games that he's played. And I think he's just he's just such an influential player. You know, so many sides have, have I suppose, uh, a, a talisman of types. And Belgium have got more than one, obviously, because there's big Romelu Lukaku as well, who's so important. But I think he has a good, he's had a very good tournament for a player who's not 100% fit. I mean, he was barely injured at all in his entire career before he went to, to Madrid. Um, which was interesting. So I, I've been saying, you know, what is it that the, the sports science department and the medical team do, you know, um, do at Madrid that, you know, um, they don't do elsewhere um, because the, there's more than bad luck involved in that. There's definitely something not right kind of going on there, I think, something maybe to do with the way they train or or whatever, but there's, there's definitely something kind of not stacking up. I think on your point about England, I think the interesting thing there is the draw's been very favourable to them. Obviously, they're travelling now for the first time. Um, they're going to Rome to play the Ukrainians um, and... Um, what we've seen so far at this tournament is the sides that have had to travel and leave their home bases um, haven't done too well so far. So it'll be interesting to see how, how England do. But certainly in terms of the logistics of this, things are very much in their favour, I think. Um, it's just going to be a question of do they travel well um, and, and can they... Yeah, can they up their game really a, a bit more? The, the Germans were really pretty poor against them the other day, I thought. Um so, you know, I think if England can beat Ukraine, and there's a lot of um, Belgian-based players in the Ukrainian squad, um, so that they're almost a kind of second dark horse side for us here at the Belgian Football Podcast, because um, there's a number of players there that we know very well, because they, they, they play with Belgian clubs. Um, they play, there's a number that play at Ghent, um, and Makarenko is at um, Kortrijk. Um, so it's almost a, a second home for us in a way. But yeah, I mean, I, I can see why absolutely they would fancy their chances. Um, and certainly there's, there's no reason why they shouldn't consider themselves as being in with, a, in with a big shout, especially now that Harry Kane's got off the mark. Yeah, yeah. And, and speaking of, of strikers, 
big name strikers. Romelu Lukaku has had a great tournament so far. He won the league with Inter Milan in Italy. So obviously the Italians know all about him. Can they stop him? What do you make of his performance against Portugal? It didn't score, but it was quite a strong display. Yeah, I th- he had a good game again. That was one of the disappointments of the Portugal game. That out ball, the final ball on the counter-attack um, really did did let the Red Devils down in that game. And you could see his frustration during the game, actually. You know, he was quite vocal on the pitch, which I thought was very encouraging because players sometimes in that situation have a tendency to get a bit sulky. Um, but, you know, he didn't. Uh, he was quite positive with his body language. Um, he's looked really up for it in this tournament um, and he's been playing really well. I think... Um, I think he will really enjoy playing against that Italian defence. He knows those players very well. They know him. They know his game. Um, I wonder whether Roberto Martinez has got a kind of tactical um, masterclass up his sleeve here. He never gets enough credit for tactically how smart he is because everyone assumes Lukaku is going to be the main man. But I think with such a concentration on him being the focal point, um, I think there's an option where Lukaku could almost operate as a decoy in this game and allow other attacking players out wide to make runs, um, you know, that, that could lead to goals. So there's, there, there's, you know, there's more than Romelu Lukaku for the Italians, I think, to worry about in this game. And I think it's quite important from an Italian perspective, they don't get too obsessed by trying to look after him um, and forget about some of the other attacking players that could really hurt them. So that, that could really play into Belgium's favour in the game. And another factor, which is interesting, is the Italians like to play quite narrow in the midfield. A lot of their play goes through the middle, and this can really be of benefit to the Belgian defence because it means that that gap between the midfield and the defence is unlikely to become too big or get too exposed if the Italians play narrow. So it'll be interesting to see how they set up in the first 20 minutes and whether the Italians tinker with that because that big worry uh, with the Belgian defence is likely to be less of a worry if the Italians persist in playing that way. Interesting, yes. And Belgium have got a lot of ability in those areas. The the wing-backs have been... Have been good. Thorgan Hazard, of course, Mounier, and then you've got Doku. I'd, I'd love to see Doku play. It would be it would be fascinating. Him against some of the older Italian defenders. Such an exciting talent. I think running against those defenders, I think because he has that low centre of gravity as well, that is so effective because of his youth and his energy as well. I think he's he's liable to do things that you know aren't in the game plan and are instinctive as well, which he can't account for, which is tremendously exciting. I wouldn't expect him to start the game, to be honest. I don't think many people are, but um, I'd be surprised if he didn't feature at some point, particularly if, if if Hazard doesn't have 90 minutes in him. He's, he's a definite option where, you know, you could see, you know, 30, 40 minutes in Doku. And I, I said before the tournament, that I think this could be a really breakout moment for him. He had his big move back in January from Anderlecht to Rennes for uh, sort of 26 million euros and played regularly for Rennes. It's done well in the French League, seems to be bedding in well there. Um, and I, I did think, well, if he has a few positive appearances at the tournament, then um, there's a good chance he could he could get another big move from France to somewhere else, certainly within the next year. And he, he's, he's a massive talent and definitely in the pool of five or six players coming up behind the current Belgian generation who are first class. Because the really exciting thing is people talk about the golden generation. Is it their last chance to win something? And the answer to that is yes, I think it probably is for this current batch of players. The really exciting thing is the players coming up behind, um, there's some amazingly, you know, good world-class players there. You know, you've got Sambila Conga, um, there's uh, Charles de Ketelaer at Bruges, Yari Basharan at Anderlecht, and, and Jeremy Doku as well. Um, so there's, there's plenty of talent coming through. So I wouldn't expect the level that Belgium have set over the last few years really to drop. 
even when some of these players um, do stop kind of playing regularly. There's the Nations League coming up in the autumn, the finals there against the French. So that's another opportunity for them to win something. And then there's a World Cup um, 18 months away. So that'll be here before we know it as well. Yeah, exciting times for Belgium. And just lastly, will it be exciting times on Friday night? Are they going to get through? I, I've changed my mind on this and my initial, I was worried initially because I thought I really don't want to play the Italians any earlier than the final, to be honest, because they were looking so good. But I, I have a sneaky feeling that Belgium are going to edge this, but it might take extra time to do it. We like a drink or two or four or five or six at Inside the Euros and we've partnered with Beer52 to bring you, listener, an exclusive offer. Just go to beer52.com slash Euro2020 or use the code Euro2020 and you can get a free case of eight unique craft beers from Beer52. The only fee to pay is $5.95 postage and packing, the cost of a pint for eight craft beers. It's a fantastic deal. You'd be part of the world's largest beer club with over 178,000 active members and each month you get sent a case of beer on a different theme. It comes with a magazine and a snack. If you don't like dark beer, you can choose an option for just light beers only. You can pause or cancel your subscription at any time. Go to www.beer52.com euro2020. Only listeners in the UK can benefit from this promotion. Welcome back to the second half of the pod. And next up, we're going to look at Switzerland against Spain in St. Petersburg. The earlier kickoff on Friday. And Spain have kind of eased into this one haven't they a couple of low scoring draws and then just putting a casual 10 goals past two teams well it's incredible first team ever to score five goals in consecutive euros matches we've seen throughout the tournament that they've had possession plenty of it uh something around the 73 74 percent mark the highest ever on record at any euros they were creating in the first two matches against sweden and poland and then there was this talk, this wonderful quote from Luis Enrique about they're just waiting for the carver to be uncorked. And effectively, that's what happened. Five goals against Slovakia, five goals after extra time against Croatia. And it looks as if this could be a quarterfinal with goals in it. Because not only have Spain been in good goal scoring form, but Switzerland as well have found three goals in the last two matches. So six in total in the last two matches. A shame for the Swiss that Granit Xhaka is suspended. Obviously a huge influence in midfield. Also just emotionally and, and in terms of the tactical intelligence, such an important captain. So it will be a blow to them. They'll have to call in. We wait to see whether it's Zakaria or Gibral So who comes into midfield. Maybe Fabian Schar could step forward. But that is, they, they are big shoes to fill. And we've seen from Petkovic that he hasn't rotated much so far. So to lose Shaka for a game like this is a big blow. This is Switzerland's first ever Euros quarterfinal. And to put it into context, it's their first major tournament quarterfinal since 1954. This is a country riding on the crest of a wave after what is surely the greatest ever win in their history, eliminating the reigning world champions being two goals down with just a few minutes to play so an amazing emotional night that they enjoyed that amazing victory on the penalties the 10th spot kick saved by Jan Sommer who incidentally is such an important player for Switzerland and now I think they face a Spain team who as you say Rick 
have just grown in confidence. They've had some hurdles to overcome. And I think when you go through some tribulations in a tournament, they can help you. That Things like Murata and all of the abuse he's received, all of the question marks, things like Unai Simon and that awful error he made and how brilliantly he recovered from it. Things like Luis Enrique making great comments to stand by his players. And we're seeing a team now in very good form. It's hard to predict Luis Enrique sometimes because, for example, Marcos Llorente started the first couple of games and then just been completely binned off, not even come on as a sub. And Gerard Moreno, for me, has been one of Spain's best players at the tournament, then just didn't even play a single minute against Croatia, not even from the bench when in extra time he could have been useful. Instead, he brought Ayathabal on and he was justified in that with Ayathabal finishing his one chance and scoring. What do you reckon Luis Enrique will do now? Is he going to more or less keep the same team or is it is it completely, you know, you have to be Lucho to understand how Lucho's thinking works? I think you have to be Lucho. This is one of the most difficult to predict. So I wouldn't like to do it. Uh, even during the games, for example, we've seen Pau Torres come on for Eric Garcia. You don't often see a like-for-like like swap at centre-back unless the player coming off has got an injury or a yellow card or, 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 or perhaps he's really suffering. But Eric Garcia's looked solid. So he's difficult to predict. But in terms of those two players you mentioned, Llorente and Gerard Moreno, I could imagine them both remaining on the bench simply because Aspiliqueta was magnificent in the last round and Ferran Torres was magnificent in the last round. So it would be very easy to understand um, Luis Enrique sticking with the same team, actually. I think that even before they went 1-0 down, Spain were magnificent in that match uh, against Croatia. And then that mental strength to put the mistake, the own goal behind them, to continue playing with such verve, with such confidence. Uh, the performance of Busquets in midfield is one that will live long in the memory. Maybe one question on my mind, and it's probably not a selection issue, but it's just interesting to see how it unfolds, is can Pedri continue to play every minute You know, in this condensed uh, you know it's a major tournament so it's obviously condensed it comes after a condensed season he has been showing on the world stage now his quality as a beautiful quote I think it came out today or, or last night from Morata who said he plays like a 40 year old plays with the experience of a 40 year old and he will go on to become one of the greatest Spanish footballers of all time so obviously Luis Enrique wants to pick him he wants to pick Busquets as well but but do they have the legs to keep going? Or does Pedri, because I know Busquets missed the first two games, but Pedri, I know he's only 18 years old, but a lot of responsibility, a lot of miles in those legs. He's been, for me, Spain's best player at the tournament so far, Pedri. Just, I mean, I know, I'm always going to say this because I love him. I've seen him a lot for Barcelona, and I think he's going to go on, like, like Morata says, and just mark the next decade as, as one of the best players on, on the earth. And barring any, I think, unfortunate, like injury, or anything like that. I, he's been remarkable and he just goes from strength to strength and he's taking on much more responsibility than he's ever done or even than he's allowed to do at Barcelona because for Barcelona he's got more defensive role, deeper with Busquets in midfield, not as close to the attack as he has been for Spain at this tournament. And yeah, I mean, it would be the most Luis Enrique thing in the world to now just take him out for, for this game and, you know, play Thiago or play, play someone else in midfield. We've all heard Joe's Apology letter to Switzerland on the last pod. Check it out if you haven't. But I thought it was about time to get a Swiss expert on. So without further ado, 
Here's our chat with Craig King at Football Swiss EN. Craig, Switzerland are in their first quarterfinals of a major tournament for 67 years and you've beaten the world champions to get here. Incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it was probably the, the best night in the Swiss national team history. I think it's quite funny as well because the last few years, and especially since 2006, has been a goal to reach the quarterfinal. In the last three years, the, the last three tournaments, they've been eliminated by Argentina, Poland and Sweden. So the, the games against Poland and Sweden were two games that they were kind of expected more to have a chance in. So when you come up against France and you, you think, well, that's it, going to be the last 16 exit again to then go and beat them. It was quite an incredible night, especially the way it all unfolded. Yeah, it was so dramatic. Poss- quite possibly the game of the tournament. And maybe the other option is Spain's game against Croatia, which took place just before. Two very similar games. But from, from the outside, it seems like it has been coming. The, the Swiss national team is improving. The players are stronger than they've ever been before. Yeah, uh, I've always said since around 2014, when they qualified for that World Cup, this group of players has had the potential. To, to reach a quarterfinal, to go deep into tournaments. I think the best example is in 2018. They had Sweden in the, in the last 16, and that side of the draw was it was more favourable teams in there to go deeper in the tournament. And they, they lost that game against Sweden 1-0, and it was really disappointing. So it began to feel like they were never going to do it. And then again, when you're, when you're paired with France, it, it's going to feel that way again. So the potential was always there, and I always said that the team could match any team on their day, but I, I really didn't expect what happened the other night to happen. Did you think it was done when, when Pogba scored the third goal for France and it was game over, it like? Yeah, definitely. It, I almost felt that way when the penalty was missed because I, I just I feared the worst throughout the game, even at halftime when they were winning 1-0. I thought this was going to go wrong in the second half somehow. And when... France scored their two goals and then they obviously got that amazing third goal from Pogba and, I, and the Swiss team doesn't really have a, a reputation for fighting back in that sort of manner so it was just it was great to see and we mentioned that game between Spain and Croatia on the same day that was another reason I couldn't see another game going that way on the same day <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't see another three so I thought that's it definitely finished but just an incredible sequence even even at the end when France hit the bar after the equaliser it just at that point, you maybe begin to think that it was going to be Switzerland's night, and they they held out an extra time well. And again, it, it just it was maybe meant to be that Mbappe missed the penalty. It was such a focus for the whole game, and and then he steps up for that penalty. And I was surprisingly confident when it when it came down to that last penalty. Jan Sommer's quite a good penalty saver, and uh, I had a good feeling. But of course, I I was still terrified. He saved a couple from Sergio Ramos, didn't he? Uh, like a couple of months ago. Yeah, and in, in the same game, yeah. I mean, obviously Sergio Ramos isn't in the in the Spain squad for the Euros, but that's the next game. Is Switzerland Spain in the quarters? How do you see that one going? Yeah, it'll be a very interesting game, I think, as well, because if you remember back in 2010, Switzerland beat Spain one 0 in that opening game of the World Cup. They were the only team to beat Spain, and then they played a few months ago, uh, last year even, and the Nations League, and there was Spain won one game and Switzerland through the other one in Switzerland. So, yeah, there's some recent history there. Uh, it'll be a very interesting game. Again, I fear the worst. I can't help but fear the worst. I don't, and I know I shouldn't because it's just beat France, but yeah, I think it'll be a very hard game. But anything can happen now. I think Switzerland have nothing to fear. 
they've, they've just beaten France, so why not just go in and see what happens at this point? I think they can give Spain a good game, just as good a game as France. That's the kind of attitude Austria had against Italy. They, you know, they got further than they'd ever got, and then they since like 1938 or something, and then they gave it a, a free hit, a swing against Italy. And I think surely it'll be the same for Switzerland because whatever happens, even if Switzerland lose three 0 or five 0 as Spain have been hitting five goals in the last couple of games, it will still count as a success for Switzerland this tournament, no? Yeah, definitely. I think um, the goal was the quarterfinal, and to get there, especially in that manner. That's it now. It would obviously be amazing to go further to beat Spain and get to a semi-final. But if they go out, they're going to be praised widely, and if they go through, then they're going to be praised even more. So there's really, there's really nothing to lose now. So as you say, just go for it. Although Granit Xhaka being out, being suspended, is is a big miss. But again, there's nothing to lose. So just go for it and see what happens. That's exactly what I was going to ask you about next. Xhaka's suspension. Who's going to come in for him in the midfield? Probably Dennis Sakaria, who plays for Borussia uh, Mönchengladbach. He's he would he was actually in the team before the tournament. He would normally play alongside Shaka, but um, Remo Froyer came in and took his place. But yeah, I would imagine it'd be Sakaria, and he's a good player. But I think we all seen when the way Shaka played on Monday night. He was so composed on the ball. His passes were all pinpoint. He was he was that figure in the in the team that held everything together. So, yeah, he's a big miss, and I'm not sure Zachariah will be able to replace him in this efficiently. But, again, just see what happens. From the outside, it's been a surprise that Seferovic has been scoring this many goals because I've seen him at previous tournaments and not really been impressed, and then scored two against France. I was stunned. Yeah, he's, he's that sort of player. He was a player that I used to criticise all the time. I, I used to, every time I would see him in a team, I'd be disappointed. And then in 2017, he, he moved to Benfica and he just turned into a different player. I, I have no explanation for how it happened, but he scores quite a lot of goals now for Benfica, I think. He was top scorer a couple of seasons ago in Portugal and then last season he missed out by maybe a goal or two. Um, so he's definitely improved his output and for the national team as well. But I think in, that, in the first game against Wales and against Italy, he was a really frustrating player again. And that's what you can get from him sometimes. But then you can also get great moments like his goal against Turkey and then the, the goals against France. He also scored a hat-trick against Belgium and a 5-2 win in the Nations League. So he's got it in him. He just doesn't do it enough, which, can, as you can imagine, is very frustrating. Frustrating for sure. But I guess if it comes together at a tournament, you can't ask for too much more. And just, just to finish, what's your prediction for the game? Well, I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic. I'll say one each and we'll go to extra time, and then I think Spain will win it in extra time. It's going to be an exciting one, especially now that you've beaten France, because I think with that, now nobody can really say for sure that, that you know, other on paper, Spain should win, but you never know, do you? Yeah, all bets are off. The last game, not chronologically, is Czech Republic against Denmark, the underdogs against the people's favourites. Both teams have done amazingly to get here for very different reasons. Joe, Denmark are favourites here, surely, but not by a huge margin. Yeah, you'd have to say that Denmark are favourites, but if only someone had tipped the Czech Republic to go far pre-tournament. <laughs> oh, wait, I think uh, I think someone on, on this on this call might have done. Might, and I can't remember who it was. Can you remind me? Yeah, it was, it was a good shout by you, Jay. It, it seemed a bit baseless at the time, but they've gone on and proved you right. 
Yeah, they have. They've been they've been really good there. This they play stodgy football, and uh, as you said, it's much like the their football is much like the Czech food, stodgy, you know, not great on the eye, but essentially does the job and you know serves your serves your needs and helps you function. So that's what they've been doing. They've done really well to get this far. But as you say, Denmark are our favourites. I think that at the end of the Czech journey might come here. You know, Denmark have got all the momentum in the world. They've absolutely been banging in the goals in the last two games. And they obviously have the added motivation of the Christian Eriksen factor. So they are, you'd say, favourites to go through. But it wouldn't be a huge surprise if this was a another really tight game that maybe even went to extra time. Tim, what do you, how do you see this one? Tough to call. Um, I watched... Czech's victory against the Netherlands uh, with a friend of mine who's Dutch and knows a lot about Dutch football. And he, he said to me before the game, this is going to be a much tougher match for us than a potential quarterfinal against Denmark. And it turned out he was right. I thought uh, Holland were totally outplayed start to finish, even before the red card for De Ligt. And consequently, the Czech Republic deserve great credit for that. They, like Joe was very poetically saying, that they, they're solid they're resilient, they're quite defensive, uh, they pack things densely, it's sort of a 4-5-1. Uh, and we just saw how difficult it was for Holland to create anything. We saw actually for England, didn't create a huge amount either. Um, so the Czech Republic have done very well to get here. And then I think about their sort of pedigree going back through the years and you cannot ignore uh, this nation because they have been so strong uh, they, these two teams have met in the Euro 2000 and the Euro 2004 and Czech won them both. The Czechs are playing their fourth Euros quarterfinal and they made the semis in 96 and 2004. And of course, if you go back to, I think it's 76, then it was Czechoslovakia who won this tournament. And I'm just not sure. It's, again, a tough one to predict. I wouldn't really say Denmark are favourites because we've seen... An amazing emotional story, if you like, with Denmark. You know, it, it, in many ways, it's the story of the Euros. What happened at Parken in match one, horrendous, horrifying scenes, you know, enormous concern, tears, anguish. The players then having to continue and losing that very historic match to Finland and then in the next game, losing as well. So to come back from two defeats to progress after that, euphoric third match and then to have wiped the floor really with uh, Wales they come here on, on an enormous high but every game now you know you cannot underestimate the Czechs they're there on merit they've got this amazing nucleus of Slavia Prague players I think it's five in total in the squad and this is a Slavia team that reached the quarterfinals of the Europa League knocked out Leicester so Kasper Schmeichel knows all about them and it's that defensive solidity that the Danes are going to have to try and breakthrough and, and it's been pretty difficult for England, very difficult for the Netherlands and although we've seen uh, I mean particularly Mikael Damsgaard in wonderful form um, I think this one's very tight. I slightly suspect that the Czechs will go through Interesting. I wanted to find out more about the Czech Republic because we haven't spoken about them that much on the pod so I, I went and talked to Tom Danicek at Czech Footy on Twitter Tom, you were in Budapest for the win over the Netherlands. That must have been amazing. Yeah, it was, uh, especially because in Prague, we, we still have 
COVID restrictions, it, they are kind of coming back and, and uh, the Prague City Hall just issued a statement that they won't be throwing any group watching parties. So it's, it's very different also to Copenhagen. I just spoke to a Danish journalist who said it's, it's been one big party. So we've just had the Budapest, I suppose, <laughs> and <laughs> compensated as, as, as Czech fans because uh, there were a lot of us, I, I think around even 20,000. Uh, so so yeah it was a it was a blast definitely it looked like a fantastic atmosphere and then Czech Republic got a result which which surely you couldn't have expected yeah not really I was I was uh, definitely pessimistic but then so I was uh, before the Scotland game as well so it's kind of a group of, of mine and of, of many many Czech fans I would say that we we never really take ourselves seriously even even contending wise so yeah, not many expected it, especially since the group stages from us were actually not really quality. Like all, all of those four points, or at least three of them against Scotland, felt a bit like a fluke, uh, a bit undeserved. And uh, the, the team definitely, with some players like Alex Kral and and others, uh, even Darida, they just weren't playing up to their standards that we know uh, they can hit. So it was a mild disappointment, even though we got out of the group. And now with the round of 16, it was a very different story. Just everyone worked so much harder and, and even technically passing ability was, was through the roof, uh, at least for, you know, compared to the, to the group stages. And do you think that's partly because of how many fans made it down to Budapest, the atmosphere, the occasion? Because obviously the next game against Denmark is in Baku and Antonin Barak, the midfielder, says he's, he'd prefer it to be in Copenhagen, which is obviously better for Denmark fans, but it's also easier yeah. for Czech fans to get there. Yeah, that, 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 that's a funny quote, but also yeah, entirely understandable. Even though, fun fact, uh, uh, Barak has already scored in Baku. Uh, in a quite a winning goal, in fact, uh, uh, back in the day. So, so he may he may know something about about the the Azerbaijan capital, but but yeah, it's it's definitely it feels like it it prevents the momentum from from going on, kind of because uh, fans as well as players are complaining that they need to go all the way to Baku. The fans were definitely a big factor in in Budapest as well. Uh, even the, the players and the coaching staff, they wished actively to play in Budapest. So, you know, the draw would, would fit us. So, so they kind of stuck to their promise that whenever they, they, they have the Czech backing in the stands, they will perform. So it, it kind of feels like now it's going to be a very, very different game. But maybe, uh, you know, for Danish, it's, it's, it's the same. They, they've played all, all games at home or, or even Amsterdam felt like a bit of a home uh, for them. So, uh, so Baku is just going to be a true neutral ground and, and who knows, maybe it will play in our hand in the end. How do you view that game? I think Czech Republic go into it as underdogs, not as big as underdogs as you were against the Netherlands. Yeah, I feel like most Czechs are vaguely aware of Denmark being a real deal and being genuinely good, uh, possibly a top five side at the tournament, uh, just, just playing with, with real confidence. Uh, maybe what they had been lacking in front of the goal, they've recovered since in the past two games. So now they, they seem to be a complete package. And so not many Czechs um, even go as far as saying it's, it's, it's an easier draw than we could have gotten somewhere else. Uh, 
so they realize that Denmark is genuinely a strong opponent, but still you you definitely feel that uh, this is not some Im mission impossible. I would say France, but you know <laughs> they are already knocked out, <laughs> and and that proves proves everyone's point that that this tournament is 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 full of surprises. We are one of them, in fact. So so uh, yeah. Whatever. When I look at the Czech Republic team, in the past, I've always looked and seen like great players, Nedved, Rosicki, Petr Cech, Jan Kola, Milan Baros, just, just, you know, players that I always look forward to seeing at tournaments. And this Czech Republic team, you know, everyone knows uh, Susek and, and Kufal from West Ham, but it's, it's not a team with, with star names. But Patrick Schick, is he becoming one? With four goals so far, obviously that amazing goal against Scotland. Yeah, like we've always uh, we've always been uh, aware of his raw ability. We weren't quite sure whether we could, he could bring it to the to the tournament or be consistent enough. I, I suppose the tournament format would actually suit him because his problem is that he gets injured quite often. Uh, he doesn't really keep the ball rolling on the club scene, so he barely reaches the ten goal threshold uh, most of the seasons. Um, so yeah, the raw ability is always there, but not quite the consistency also due to health. And now everything just came together and he's, he's showing what we always knew he could be. And that's the most complete striker we've possibly ever had e even more complete than color, because, you know, when you look at shake, even though their hold up play, both of those, uh, is, is top notch. When you look at shake, he's just so much more elegant. Uh, he he like he flies over the page like uh, yeah no no great parallel is coming to my mind but but he's he's just very elegant uh, very light footed and that's that's kind of what uh, I actually I don't feel we we still play to his strengths as much as we could uh, but yeah just the fact that he scored four goals already is obviously huge for us and the other player that stood out at this Euros is is also Holles. Who scored against the Netherlands, of course, and he's a defender, but he wears number nine and he seems to get into very attacking areas. Can you tell me a little bit about him? Yeah, he's an interesting case. He he was a right back just two years ago, I, I think, and, and for the past two seasons, he's mostly played a holding midfielder, which is also the role he's filling in, at the Euros. And he's he's a very smart player, an interception machine. He he just sweeps up those loose balls, very, very clever in, in filling space and he complements Socek very well, even though they they haven't really played together back back in back in the Slavia days before Socek left. So they seem to have this sort of natural chemistry that hasn't really had any opportunity to be forged. But he's he's also an interesting player because this this goal wasn't all that special or not. I mean, special it was, but not that surprising because. Um, He's actually scored plenty of clutch goals recently, including the one against Arsenal, you probably uh, recall well, but also domestically he scored against Sparta, I think even in, in two games, and Sparta are the main rival of, of Slavia. Um, so, yeah, he, he has a knack for hitting it from long range as well, which, which we haven't really seen, and maybe maybe that's, that's the occasion, this, this quarterfinal is the occasion for him to show that ability as well. <laughs> just lastly then what's your prediction for the game against Denmark are you going to do it well I, I don't know if I should do a prediction to be honest because I'm <laughs> good at it uh, but yeah I actually I feel like usually I'm, I'm pessimistic 
and today it's it's kind of the same i feel like like the danish have all what it takes to to go even to the final to be honest and uh i feel like it's definitely going to be a low scoring game uh definitely the first goal even though it's a cliche in this particular instance i feel like the first goal will count twice as important uh because none of these teams even though obviously the past two games of danish were high scoring i i feel like they are also the team that uh, that likes to uh sit on a league or or you know be be very tight at the back uh so i feel like we'll find it very hard to score on them and and may end up like one nail to to denmark and and we'll be done with it but yeah hopefully not hopefully they'll they'll spring a surprise once more at least once more and that's your lot bumper episode today hope you enjoyed it check out that beer 52 deal to stay refreshed through the quarterfinals see you next time